But having said all that, I'm going to ask you to turn this morning once again to the book of Romans. And I'm going to do something very miraculous for you this morning. You're going to witness the miraculous this morning. No, I'm not going to disappear. (laughs) I'm going to tie in Romans 4 with the triumphal entry. It's never been done. It's death-defying. But I'm going to face it fearlessly, as, as I always do. And so I'm going to ask you to open this morning with me to Romans chapter 4. And I'm going to read down through Romans chapter 5, verse 8. And the reason I'm going to do that is um, I don't want to break it all up too much for us. Because when we get to the real, not that this isn't the meat of it, but when, when we get to the crescendo, to the climax of this book, which I think are chapters 8, 9, and 10... I want us to remember the thrust of it and not necessarily the jot and tittle of going through it all, if if you know what I mean. Sometimes I think our thoughts get tied up with too much information. So I want to give a... I can't possibly do uh, justice to a text that big and and that full of doctrine, but I think it's good for us to hear it read out loud and to cherish the words as we hear them. And so Paul writes to the Romans, What then shall we say, that Abraham our father was found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believed. Amen. Though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the father, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void by the promise made, and the promise rather made of no effect, Because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there's no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace. So that the promise 
might be sure to all the seed, not only those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which are not as though they were, who contrary to hope in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, He did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not stagger at the promise of God through unbelief but was strengthened in faith giving glory to God. And being fully convinced that what he had promised he was also able to perform. And therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him but also for ours. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, and who was delivered up because of our offenses, and was raised because of our justification. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we also have access by faith into his grace, in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. Father, we praise you for this gospel. What a powerful, comforting, delivering word it is to our souls, O Lord, and we praise you for it. Let us hide it away in our hearts that we might grow by it, Lord, and increase in faith as recipients of grace. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. No, there really is a power in hearing the word of God and the promises of God. And there's something in the believer that makes us know. Well, it's not something. It's the Holy Spirit in the believer that makes us know, that gives us access to the, to the fact of it. The gospel isn't a little therapy program. It's a fact accomplished in history by Christ on the cross. Remember, Christ died. That's history. Christ died for our sins. That's truth, friends. That's doctrine that gives meaning to the event. So let's begin, and I'll, as I say, I cannot possibly do justice to the fullness of the teaching that we have just heard, but we can rejoice in it all the way through. For what does the Scripture say, Paul asks rhetorically? It says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Friends, it occurred to me this week as I was talking to a friend, he said he was reading Spurgeon, and what I got out of it is this. The gospel is very serious business. 
In fact, there's no business so serious as the gospel. Now, your souls can be caught up in all the day-to-day things, the routines of life, and I don't belittle that. I have the same life's cares that everyone else has. But in the end, in the end of these short little lifespans that we have in this earth, there is an eternity to experience with God, and the access to it is faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the gospel, and that's the end of it. And there is no other way but that. It's the most serious concern that anyone may have, whether they're in the faith of Christ or out of it. You know, the difference between us and the unbeliever is we know it's serious business, and the unbeliever hasn't come face to face with that yet, but he will, one way or the other. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's the most serious concern that anyone can have in this life. And what's more serious is that most people in this world go about their lives placing nary a thought to eternal things. We don't like to talk about it. We even say things like, oh, don't talk about death. That's morbid. And if we're feeling good about ourselves and our lives at the present moment, then all is good. And if we're miserable with ourselves and our estate at this present moment, then all is not so good. But what will it take for the man on the street... What will it take for the man on the street to seek God? What will it take for him to seek God? How can he be concerned with eternal things when he has no taste for that? The only way for this to happen, it seems, is to bring eternity near at hand. And God does that. And he's done it to some of you, and Lord knows he's done it to me. He brings eternity near at hand to us. He brings it close by. He lets it rub up against us from time to time through affliction and tribulation, persecution in this life. And suddenly, life doesn't seem so promising. And you know that life comes in ebbs and flows and there is a time for dancing and a time for mourning. We know that, right? And I love both of those times, but I'll take the dancing part. I'm actually a pretty good dancer, but... um, So we suddenly see ourselves for what we are in those moments. Talks about tribulation, increasing character. You heard that part. Friends, I always said this, and and I'm going to reiterate it again today. And I know at at first hearing it, it sounds foolish and not well thought out. But here it is. You ready? All problems are theological. And you can say, come on, Pastor, I got a drip on my sink. How is that a theological problem? That's a problem for Donnie church plumber. Let me tell you something. The reason I can tell you that all problems are theological and that the Christian has to look at life this way is because if you're a Christian, you know one thing. Your problem is not your problem. Your problem is how you deal with your problem. That's the real problem. Do you deal with it in faith? And I don't belittle the problems that we suffer at this present time even. And some of our families are in serious, long-term moments of suffering. And some of us have been there and can speak to it and look back to it and be glad that it's in the past, but we know we don't know what the future holds. No, all problems are theological because your problem's not your problem. How you deal with your problem is your problem. And that's where the building of the character comes in. And that's where the test of faith comes in. 
Will your faith be there to see you through the trials and afflictions of this life? And I say that it will. I say that it will. So God brings eternity close to us at some times. Sometimes have you ever felt that old man eternity rubbing up against you and you're going to leave this place and go there and that place is unknown? But not to us. We don't suffer as those who have no hope. We'll suddenly see ourselves for what we are. We are desperate souls in need of a Savior. Oh, Lord, save me. We're all thieves on the cross at the end, friends. For our meager imaginations cannot conjure a picture so grim as the hell that awaits all those who gave no regard to the sacrifice of Christ. Friends, we don't get out of this with our lives if we look upon God sacrificing his son in our behalf and we think of it as nothing. All our lives, we're blessed with so many things. We're blessed with the sun shining pleasantly on our fields and through our days and in our memories of happy times. We do love those sunny days of life, don't we? And then we experience even the soft rains that water the fields that we're fed by. Friends, our cupboards are full of good things, as the scripture says, as when the grain and wine increased. We... We found our spouses in our youth and we were satisfied. We were satisfied with the comforts that we found in one another. Man who finds a wife finds a good thing. Hallelujah. We've seen our children grow and prosper. We've set our affections upon our grandchildren. And we've lived long enough to see them blessed and to bless them with the abundance that we've been blessed with. Nothing makes a grandparent more happy than to bless his grandchildren with good things, and then send them home to their parents. We've experienced the freedom, friends, to live our lives as we please and to go about our daily routines in relative joy and blessedness. I know there are ups and downs in the political world, but ultimately what I'm doing right here, right now, is a miracle that we even have the freedom to do it. And our founding documents had the wisdom to set that forth for us. And yet, for most of us in this world, we've done all these things without a thought to the provider of those good things. We've enjoyed the gifts, friends, and we've ignored the giver. Friends, we've eaten the fruit and despised the tree at the same time. We praised every blessing and said nothing of the blesser. And all the time, the gospel was there declaring the love of God. The Son of God was there bleeding for his own He rode into the city with the praises of men. And today's the anniversary of that triumphal entry of Christ into the city. Yet a mere week later, the praises went away. He left carrying the implement of his own death. A mere week later. Not even, right? Five days later. He entered in triumph. He exited in shame. He offered life and was rewarded with death. He spoke the truth, but lies were spoken about him. He was found innocent and still condemned. He was reviled and ridiculed and spoke only of forgiveness. Every one of us, friends, was in that crowd. First, we praised him. Why did we praise him when he came in? Because it was fashionable. It was trendy. Everybody was doing it. And we we became suspicious because of who he said we were. And then we became incredulous because of who he said he was. 
And then he said, before Abraham, I am. And we took up stones to stone him. And all the while, every sinner at the feast that, that day, every pilgrim in the city carrying their lambs to atone for the sins of their families would have said they believed in God. Do you ever think about that? There was no one in that city while Jesus was being hounded by the Pharisees and questioned and ridiculed by the other political parties of the day. And then when they called for his crucifixion, and then when they, carry, they made him carry the cross out of the city, there wasn't a person there that day who would have said they didn't believe in God. They were there for Passover. They would all say they believed in God. Friends, the term believing in God is overrated. It, doesn't, it may not mean what you thought it means. And I'm going to ask you today and beseech you, don't leave this place today without realizing the great distinction between these things. Of course Abraham believed in God, but Abraham believed God, and that was accounted to him for righteousness. Friends, I was young and now I'm old, and I've seen nary a creature who would own up to his own practical atheism. You know what those people were in that city that day? They were atheists. You could say, oh, Pastor, how can you say they were atheists? They all believed in God. Let me set this up for you from a divine viewpoint. I'm getting it now. No, let me set this up for you, all right? There's one God. We all know that. But he's real, and he's who he said he is. He's not somebody else. So you either believe in that one God or you don't. And you say, oh, but pastor, they believe in something else. I know, but we all know there's one God. So if you believe in something else, you don't believe in God. Is that too hard? So you believe in something that is not God. You are an atheist. You're a practical atheist. You're not a philosophical atheist because you invented a God and said he's God, but he's not, right? You either believe in God or you're a practical atheist. These men are professing atheists or rather, few men, rather, are professing atheists, right? How many people say they're an atheist? Very few. Everyone says, oh, I believe in God. I'm not religious, but I do. You know, people say all kinds of things. But they're de facto atheists. These people are practical atheists, and they act as if there is no God. How else could Christ be killed when he came? Sure, they loved him when he was in style. It was Palm Sunday. Everybody loves Jesus on Palm Sunday, Right? And everyone loves Jesus on Easter Sunday because he rose from the dead that we might rise from the dead, but not too many people liked him on Thursday and Friday. That's why you, I guess that's why you can poll the public one week and this political party's way ahead and poll them another day and this one's ahead. That always amazed me. So I've met a mere handful of fellow creatures who would deny the existence of God. It's really not that prevalent. And I hope all good Christians know the difference between a cold, dry, verbal assertion that there must be something out there and an intimate connection with the actual creator God of the universe and Jesus Christ, his son. Isn't that different? I believe in the God who crucified his son on a cross and raised him up the third day. Isn't that a little different than... Well, there's something out there greater than ourselves, and we all must give heed. Friends, Abraham believed in God. He believed everything about him, but that's not the same as faith. God spoke to Pharaoh. God spoke to Abimelech, but neither man knew him. I've given you the rules. I've, I've seen them, and I, I hold to them even now. Here's the rules. You know what they are. You don't just believe in Jesus. You believe what Jesus believes. 
Jesus believes in a lot of things, and he told us what he believes. We can't, like, pick and choose a la carte Jesus. You know, I like these things over here. I don't like what he said here. I'll take it up with him at judgment. We'll, we'll have a talk. No, you have to believe what Jesus believed. That's what believing God means. I believe what God believes. That's what Abraham did. That's totally different than when we say believing in God. You do see the difference. So we believe what Jesus believed. And if there's a second rule, it's this. The second is like the first. Somebody said, you have to love who Jesus loves. Jesus loves the church, friends. Don't go through your lives as Christians and despise the church because you're despising the ones Jesus died for. And that doesn't make him happy. Remember when he came to Paul on the road to Damascus? He said, he said to him, why are you persecuting me? He didn't know Jesus. Saul of Tarsus didn't know Jesus. He never met him. He wasn't there for the, for the events of Holy Week. He came as one born out of due time, he said himself, right? He didn't know Jesus. So he looked at Jesus and thought, how am I persecuting you? He was persecuting the church, and Jesus takes it personally. No, Jesus loves the church, and we must love the church. And guess what? We should know from the beginning that while we were still sinners, he died for us. In other words, friends, the church isn't that lovable. There were a bunch of sinners. We have to look past that. That's where the lovableness of the brethren comes in. It is like a sovereign anointment, the psalmist said. So rule number one, believe what Jesus believes. And rule number two, love who Jesus loves. Friends, you might not know this, but Abraham believed in Jesus. Oh, how can that be, Pastor? You yourself told us he lived 2,000 years before Jesus. How could he know? You may know what the Pharisees said to Jesus. Do you remember this? You're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Remember they tested him like that? And what did he say? He said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Abraham believed in Jesus. Abraham believed what Jesus believed. That's faith, and there is a difference. You won't find a person uh, at a funeral or at an Easter Sunday that would say they don't believe in God. But if they don't believe his word, if they don't believe his plan for salvation, they don't believe God. And that's not faith, and it won't save you. It's empty, and it's as dead as any atheistic profession you've ever heard. You either believe God or you don't. Abraham did because he knew he was able to perform the thing that he promised. That's believing God. There are so many worshipers who will fill the church houses this Sunday and receive their palm fronds who are as dry and unbelieving as these Pharisees, my friends. Palms will not get you there, friends. Easter baskets are full of everything but not eternal life. So many kids will search the crevices and crannies for colored eggs and they'll find them. But seek and you shall find was not talked about colored eggs. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. I dare say that Abimelech, the Philistine king, king believed in God. I dare, I dare say that Pharaoh, the Egyptian king, believed in God. I dare say that the cantankerous Pharisees and the self-important scribes and the theologically dead Sadducees all would say they believed in God, and none of them knew anything about belief in God. None of them were accounted righteous before him. And why is that, do you suppose? What Abraham believed was what God, is that God is a God who speaks. 
God is not some amorphous power in the universe that is separate from us and distant from us. No, he's near to us, even in our mouths, even in our hearts, he said. He's a God who has a plan of salvation and has made the plan known through the scriptures because the scriptures have a voice. He's a God who's no respecter of persons, and Abraham knew that. So how is Abraham's faith different from these agnostic pretenders? Abraham believed in the God who speaks. He believed in the God who delivers. He was not some, or his faith rather, was not some bland assertion that God exists. Friends, that's just a best guess, but it's not faith. Abraham heard the plan of God for salvation. Come out of Ur of the Chaldees. Go to a land that I'll show you, right? And I'll make you a father of many nations. He put full faith and confidence in the plan of God. He believed God. And the plan was exactly the same plan that you and I believe in. And, it's a, and that's this apostle's whole point in the next few passages. Friends, there isn't an old gospel for Abraham and a fresh, new, clean one for us because Abraham messed his up. And Moses and the Israelites all messed it up in the wilderness. Abraham received a fuller understanding than, than men of God who went before him. The scriptures say of the ancient faithful that these all died in faith. Book of Hebrews chapter 11, right? The great hall of fame, we call it, right? When he lists the faith and the acts of faith of all the great men. And then in the end he says, these all died in faith, not having received the promises. But seeing them afar off were assured of them. They believed God. They didn't even receive them in their life, but they continued believing in God. That's faith. They embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth and were glad to be off it and in the presence of God because their faith bought them the same thing it bought you and me. Presence with God for eternity. And so they believed what they saw afar off and we believe what has been brought near. Paul even writes it. He said in Romans 10, 8, he said, the word is near you in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Friends, that's why I preach it, and that's why you listen to preaching, because it brings the word near to you. We receive a fuller understanding than the men of God who went before us, but he and they and we all believe God. Yeah, we have more revelation than Abraham had. We believe in the way of salvation that he conceived. And by the way, while we're at it, I, I, I'll go into it next week more than now, but he kept talking about, was it for the circumcised only or for the uncircumcised? Well, it's for both. And Paul belabors the point by circumcision. He means law. The law came in 400 years after Abraham. And God did tell Abraham to be circumcised and to circumcise everyone in his company. But that was after Abraham believed God. In other words, you didn't have to be Jewish. You didn't have to follow Moses' law. That would be works, and you'd have something of which to boast. You see what the apostle's doing here. He's building this definition for us of what true faith really is. And friends, it has nothing to do with us. It's poured into us from outside. It's not, oh, follow your heart, and you'll take you there. It's not, oh, when you're dying, just go toward the light that you see. That light is Satan with a torch going like this. So we have a fuller understanding, perhaps, even than Abraham had. Dare I even say that? It was the same for Abraham. Faith was the same for Abraham as it was for Moses. The plan of salvation was the same for all those men. And so we read 
Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Friends, believe God and it will be accounted to you for righteousness. You know, I always knew this. I didn't know how to put it into words, but I remember when I first came to Christ and I said to a friend of mine, a very intelligent, thoughtful friend of mine, and I said to him, you know, I'm going to read the Bible. I'm already reading it. I said, and I had taken the Bible as courses in college, but never read it. You know how you can study law and never read the Constitution, and you can, and Luther could um, go to seminary and not even see a Bible till he was there for two years. You know how academicians teach us this way? But I said to my friend, I'm going to read the Bible, and he says, oh, I've said that a lot of times. It's the... Uh, Basis of all Western literature, all the archetypes are there. It's good, it's good background for understanding literature and fiction of the great writers. And I said, no, I'm not reading it for that. I said, I'm going to read it, and I'm going to believe it while I read it. And, he, and to him, that was nonsense. How can you say that? You haven't read it yet. How do you know you're going to believe it? I said, I just know I'm going to because it's God's word. And somehow that came into this head of mine. I couldn't have surmised that on my own. You can't work up a algorithm to get yourself there that's just a gift of god and to him it was foolishness foolishness to those who perish and to me it was the gift of god i just knew i'd believe it i knew it was god's word and i knew i'd believe it and and very often it confused me and i thought this says this thing and this says this and they seem contrary friends that's called a paradox but a paradox is just a seeming contradiction it's not a real one And God wants you to meditate on that until you can make those two things work together for good. And so we receive a fuller understanding than the men who went before us. We believe in a way of salvation that he conceived, and we've put aside every invention of man that vainly tries to become another way of salvation. We put that aside. There is but one way to God, and it was the same for Abraham as it was for Moses. It was the same for Paul, and it's the same for us. Now, I want to say, I heard a very prominent American preacher interviewed, listen up now, on conservative cable. Now, our conservative cable channels are very useful for political decisions, not for religious decisions. Let me say very plainly, Fox News does some good reporting, but they are the Catholic station. They don't have a lot of religious advice for us, okay? And this is where I heard a young preacher very well-known, thousands, maybe millions of followers, and he was interviewed on a conservative cable news channel, and he was there to speak about the coming Easter celebration. Of course, you would have a great um, celebrity of of this type. And he said that Jesus proved at the cross that when things go bad, they may yet turn around. And we should be heartened by his example. I don't know why you're not groaning and screaming and saying, Blasphemy! One of the great preachers of our land thinks Jesus was setting an example of how the trend of life can get better after bad things by going to the cross because he rose up on Easter Sunday. And he was all so pleased that they were, oh, that's such a the heartful message. Oh, that's so wonderful. He's like so many preachers who profess belief in God but put their own spin on the facts of the gospel and salvation. So many preachers who profess belief in God speak of Jesus as though he came to be a good example to all of us in godliness and that we should imitate him in this. He came to encourage us that this life is not all there is. 
and that we too may be resurrected to eternal life when we die. Now, I don't dispute that these things as factual realities of the life of Christ, of course we should imitate Christ in the earth. But I must say that these are the sad, little, anemic contrivances of men who have quite quite missed the point of the cross. And I'm going to drive the point home to you this morning. These make a mockery of the death of Christ, friends. These are the types of teachers who say that Easter is a time of rebirth. Easter is in the spring when all of creation is budding and blossoming again. Eggs and rabbits and fertility and rebirth. This is the message of the gospel. And so life's being renewed all around us. And the cross is the great herald of this wonderful circle of life and death. Friends, that's the most pagan conception of this that I could dream up. The apostle would say to such things that all those things are wonderful, pithy, poetic things. But no one who sees such things as the purpose of God and the passion of Christ will be accounted righteous before him as Abraham was accounted righteous. And I would say to you that no one will receive any opposition to such an anemic, eclectic, paganized message. Nobody would disagree with that. That's what they want to hear. They want to hear that we're all going to heaven in the circle of life. And Jesus is just showing us it's a big pagan circle of life. And he's being the example. Friends, if that was the gospel of Christ, that Jesus died and resurrected so that we might have hope in rebirth and resurrection, no one would object. In fact, I can hardly believe that if it was the message of Christ, that there would have been a reason for his detractors to have crucified him at all. In fact, I rather doubt that such a children's story as that would have gleaned him any detractors at all. Everyone could have gotten on board of such a bland and empty message as that. These are the types of messages that blend quite well with the ecumenical belief that all religions have a grain of truth in them. Indeed, there are many ways to eternal life. For some, it's to become followers of Jesus, but surely we're not to discount all the other historical holy men who lived exemplary moral existences. Surely they have something to teach as well about eternal life, because after all, all Jesus is doing is teaching about eternal life in that gospel. I'm here to tell you that is not the gospel of Christ, and don't be fooled by it. All these things are quite beside the point of the cross, but in a strange way, they make Paul's point. You see, this sort of easy believism, this eclectic universalism, does nothing but take away and shield our eyes from the reality of what Christ did on that fateful Passover day. He was not paving the way. He was not putting the cherry on the Sunday of good manners and human charity. He was not pointing to the circle of life that all men may look to for their salvation. It is not the message that just as the leaves of the trees and the cherry blossoms in spring and the crocuses and the tulips are coming up out of their dark wintry graves, so shall you and I. That is not the gospel of Christ, friends. Not at all. Jesus was not pointing the way of salvation. He was not paving the way of salvation. He was accomplishing our salvation for us because we couldn't do it. And he proved it when he said, it is finished. If he had not given his life in this way, if he had not pushed his way and forced his message upon the society of his day, 
then we, with all of our good works and all our wondrous hopes, would never have a chance to live everlastingly in the presence of God. Friends, his death was a payment. It was a debt come due. Remember this, friends. The cross is not a signpost pointing the way. It's the destination. It was not a commandment to live better and try harder. It was a ransom paid, a debt received. Our salvation was accomplished that day, the moment the Savior breathed his last words and declared, it is finished. Other people have translated that, paid in full. What an awesome declaration it was, and there was no one before or after him who had the authority to make such a declaration. It is finished, he said. Not a signpost, not pointing the way, accomplishing our salvation for us. It is finished. It is ours now. It was pointed to by the prophets. It was pointed to by the evangelists and the apostles. And then it came, and then it was here. Verses 4 and 5. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. You can't earn this, friends. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. I think that most well-oriented evangelicals, for us, the relationship between faith and works, we pretty much get that, don't we? We get the difference between grace and debt. We get the difference between gifts and wages, don't we? If you work for a thing, friends, it's not grace for you to be paid for your service, right? The labor is worthy of his wage. Friends, that's not the gospel, the labor is worthy of his wage. I mean, you could work it in there. The gospel is more like the worker worked as hard as he could and accomplished nothing, but he got paid anyway. That's grace. I've done that many times. If you work for a thing, it's not grace to be paid for it. In fact, it's a thing that you may demand. If you've worked for it, you can demand it. If you were so good that you've earned the salvation of God, you could walk right up to the cross and say, I'm the one that doesn't need you to be there. I actually earned this. And then when you get it, you could boast about it. Before God, you could boast. Friends, if you worked for a thing, you could say, I've earned my pay and I demand my wages. And I may boast of my accomplishment and my enrichment by the labor of my own hands. You could say, look at all the wonderful things I've gained by the earnest labors of my own hands and my own intestinal fortitude. You could say that if you earned it. And you can say that in some areas of your life, I presume. It might be right to say, I've behaved well in your sight, and so I deserve your respect to one another. And you're in the wrong if you deprive me of my well-earned respect. You could say that one to the other, but you can't say it to God. And conversely, friends, if you give me a gift, it's a thing of grace. It does not come from me. I've not earned it. It's purely magnanimous on your part. And all I can do is say thank you. That's all that's left, right? My part is simply to be thankful. It seems to me that these are simple concepts, friend. God gave you grace. All you can do is be thankful. Somehow, even the most learned of people miss the point of the cross. And it's not so much that it's missed, but that it's despised. Now, I want to say something. I heard Franklin Graham preach lately. And by the way, I have great respect for his preaching and all of that. And I'm not here to criticize. I just want to say that up front. I love Franklin. I love what he does. And I love what he spends money on. And he spends money this time of year on, on advertisements on big cable stations to get the gospel out. He's not selling anything. He's trying to save souls. And so he gave a great 
commercial announcement on cable TV. I saw him the other day. It's his Easter tradition to buy time to preach a simple, truthful gospel message. And I'm quite respectful and glad to see him use his ministry resources for such a big platform. It's the heritage of the Graham family. There's one part of his message, however, that I think is not in keeping with the thinking of our time. And I want to tell you what that is. In the message, he speaks of his hearers as though the great hurdle for them is their great sense of personal unworthiness. I don't think those are the hard people to win. And there may be great sinners out there who feel quite that way. They might say, oh, I can't come to Christ till I clean up my life. And there is an aspect of that in society. But the real hurdle, I think the greater portion of the hearers of the gospel are not so self-deprecating as that. I don't think people feel unworthy. I think they feel worthy. That's my observation. I don't see this segment of society in my daily walk that are so ashamed of their sins they feel too unworthy to receive Christ. What I'm seeing is a population of boasters. I'm seeing people too proud to admit to sin. I see a society of moral competitors and virtue signalers. What do you think the Pharisees were? It wasn't different there. They thought they were too good to follow the gospel of Christ. They didn't need a sacrifice. Their lamb on the altar was their sacrifice. They missed the point. They see themselves as good and deserving and as having something of which to boast. I see a populace that will be quite willing to stand before the preacher of the gospel and say, what a wonderful message, Pastor. I know of many people that need to hear it, but not me. Paul aimed the better part of three chapters at just this type of person. That's who he's aiming at. Jesus even gave, he gave us the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, right? The publican knew that he was unworthy, and he came right to God and gave a right speech before God, a right prayer. And the Pharisee just came in and said, thank you for making me like I am and not like him. And he despised him right in front of God. He was despising the person Jesus loved, breaking the rule number two. Paul aimed the better part of three chapters at this type of person. He's told us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Friends, that's not about a person feeling unworthy. That's convincing him that he's not. Paul said there's none righteous, no, not one. He said that because so many thought they were. Paul's not seeing the man on the street or the Pharisee in the temple as people who see themselves as needing a moral substitute to appease a heavenly creditor in their behalf. Most men see themselves as exceedingly good and deserving and better than the other man. They don't want Christ to earn their salvation for them. They want to do it themselves. Hence those eclectic little foolish um, examples of the, of the gospel that preachers preach this time of year. And if that were not so, there would have been no argument about the meaning and message of the cross. He's not there to pay for his own sins, friend, but to pay for the sins of all those who will believe. Abraham believed, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He believed God. He believed God's promise that he would be the father of many nations. He believed that from his own loins at 99 years old, when his wife was 90, that they would conceive a child who would be the seed of the coming Savior. Abraham believed that. He believed God when he said, in Isaac, your seed will be blessed. He believed that there were two nations in Sarah's womb and in Rebekah's womb after her, and there was the son of the flesh and the son of the promise. He believed God when he took Isaac out to the mountain to sacrifice him. 
that God would provide a sacrifice. I think the symbolism there gave him the message. I don't think he missed that one, and neither should we. Lloyd-Jones writes of it like this. He said, he gave him a foreshadowing of the death upon the cross and showed him how he's going to redeem man. He did not see it clearly, but he saw it afar off. And he proved the extent of his faith in the most extraordinary way imaginable. Imagine that. God told a 100-year-old man with a 90-year-old wife who had never conceived a child that they would have a baby, and from him, the Savior of the world would come. The seed, right? The promised seed, going back to Adam. And then when the child is 13 or 14 years old, God says, now take him out to Mount Moria and sacrifice him there. See what I mean about contradictions that aren't really contradictions? He didn't need Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. He needed Abraham to agree to sacrifice Isaac. He needed him to consent because God said it. That's what he needed. So, of course, he didn't let him do it. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead. That's an that's a overstatement because he lived another 75 years. But since he was about 100 years old and he considered the deadness of Sarah's womb, or rather he didn't, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. To believe God as Abraham believed God was to be certain beyond doubt, to trust in the faith in the face, rather, of seemingly impossible odds, to look beyond our earthly sight that we are nearly dead and our spouse had been barren into old age, and yet to believe God when he said, I made you a father of many nations. Imagine how ludicrous that had to sound in the fleshly, unbelieving ear of a person. You know, he called, first of all, his name was Abram, right? Oh, high father, it meant. And then he, God changed him to Abraham. Now, when the Hebrew hears Abraham, what he hears is father of many nations or father of a multitude, right? So Abraham's going around and they say, oh, there's father of a multitude. Oh, the guy with no kids? The 100-year-old guy with the old, the old lady as a wife and they don't have any kids? That's the father of a multitude? I mean, only the faithful could say, oh, you don't understand. God said it. And as the preacher said, God said it and that settles it. I made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. So he was calling Abraham what he obviously was not. And Paul will remind us of these things continuously throughout the epistle. And I'll remind you that when all these famous tidings of the birth of Isaac were fulfilled, and Abraham and Sarah were blessed beyond measure that Sarah died. Remember the story? Sarah died, and Abraham lived on. And we don't talk about this too much, and neither did the Scripture talk about it too much, but he married Keturah. You remember Keturah, his second wife? He had six children of her, and each one of the six became a great nation. God was still fulfilling this long into his old age, and he died at 175 years old and was buried with his fathers. Oh, Father, give us such faith. Father, give us the reality of the gospel, O oh Lord, that Christ accomplished our salvation for us. 
Surely with the prophets he pointed the way, but he accomplished it in his own body. And it was finished on that day. There's nothing we could add to it, and God help us if we take anything away. Oh, in Jesus' name, oh Lord, give us faith to believe God. And let us too be accounted as righteous before him. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.